Season 9 of Beyond the Plate is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Ford's Gin. Shake up the journey. All right, we like to start each episode with an audio test. So for you all, let's go with three of something for each of you. Jeannie, name three ingredients Tim loves to use in his cooking. Oh, okay. I'm going to say soy sauce, vinegar, and garlic. <laughs> Sounds like the making of adobo. Tim, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> three ingredients Jeannie loves to use in her baking. Uh, Fuetine, chocolate pearls, and um, cassis. Nice. All right, you guys sound good. Let's do it. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, the duo season. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Six years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their communities. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, we're so glad you're back. This season, we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos in the industry. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, as you just heard, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. We all know seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store can be a little daunting. Ford's Gin was crafted by bartenders, for bartenders, and at-home bartenders alike to make a really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? So that's what he did. You know, here I am thinking that we're not actually doing a read for our partners because I actually had a question about a holiday party coming up and here we are. Perfect timing, which is literally today, Cappy, I'm thinking about making batch cocktails for a party happening a week from today at my house. I have one uh, that I'm going to be making already in my head, but I was thinking about what the other one is. And I was thinking, let me use gin. So, and I went out the other night in New York City and someone had a Negroni and it looked awesome. So I was like, I'm going to make batch Negronis. And ironically, I think you have that in your fridge right I now. I did. I have it in my fridge right now. I made them for Thanksgiving. I have two batch ones, but since this is not an episode, it's a read for our friends at Ford's. Bottle Negroni is awesome, dude. From one bottle of Ford's gin, you'll get about three batches because the Negroni is equal parts gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. And Ford's has the measurements etched into the bottle, so it makes it really easy to measure. And on Thanksgiving, from our friend Tim Cooper over at Ford's Gin on our bonus episode right before Thanksgiving, he had the suggestion of dropping a couple cinnamon sticks in there, letting them infuse overnight, which gave it a little holiday spice, if you will. They were a hit. I actually made two bottles on Thanksgiving because I went to two different Thanksgivings. Highly suggest that. The other one, the other bottle cocktail I did with Ford's is a Bee's Knees, which I believe is lemon juice, gin, and honey syrup. Also incredibly easy, incredibly delicious, and it creeps up on you, but... Well, back to the Negroni, did you pour the gin out, drink the gin because of the measurement to like get the gin down and then put the Campari in, etc.? Yeah, you could pour it out, leave in, you know, uh, eight ounces or so, because I would do eight ounces of gin, eight ounces of Campari, eight ounces of sweet vermouth. And then the cinnamon, and then cinnamon stick, yeah. Really good. Well, let's finish this up so you can go drink. And keep it in the fridge so it's nice and cold. Yeah, delicious. Try it out. One of the things we love about our partners here at Beyond the Plate is how they all give back, and Ford's does so within the bartending community. They've also supported events and fundraisers and continuously have the bartending community in mind. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to fordsgin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Hey everyone, one more thing. The team behind Beyond the Plate is excited to bring you a brand new podcast called Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a kid and family friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. Listen along as we share delicious dishes and tasty treats from chefs and celebrities who cook at home with their kids. Clean Play Club is a great way to get kids excited about food and cooking. Find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at Clean Play Club Pod. Now, Enjoy this week's episode. 
I can confidently say my guests today are two of the hottest chefs in the country right now. The husband-wife duo are behind Kasama, a bakery and modern Filipino restaurant in the Ukrainian village neighborhood of Chicago. In one year, just one year, they racked up Food & Wine Best New Chef, James Beard Award Best Chef Great Lakes, the first Filipino restaurant in the world to be awarded a Michelin star, probably plenty more, but also not to mention the recent Rob Report list of 50 most powerful people in American fine dining. And not only all of that, their restaurant was mentioned several times in the hit Hulu series, The Bear. Jeannie Kwan is pastry chef, co-owner of Kasama. She walked away from a degree in biochemistry to focus on pastry as a career after obtaining a scholarship to Newberry College in Brookline, Massachusetts. Esquire Magazine named her Pastry Chef of the Year in 2017 while at Oriole Restaurant. Tim Flores is the chef, co-owner of Kasama. He attended Wartburg College for Communication Design and Business, where he was also an avid wrestler and pole vaulter, only to find himself polishing dishes one summer at GT Fish and Oyster in Chicago. He's proud to integrate his diverse cooking style with his Filipino heritage to help fulfill an innate desire to feed and ultimately care for people. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with chefs Jeannie Kwan and Timothy Ryan Flores. What is going on over there, you two? Oh, not too much. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Of course. You're on fire. Have been. Continue to be. It's really exciting to see. I want to give the listener a little taste of Kasama without the actual taste. So I'm going to break this up. Jeannie, I want Jeannie to first take us into like morning service at Kasama, like the whole experience, sure. the line you walk yeah. in, what do you see, what do you type of food? And then I'm going to do the PM service for 10. So Jeannie, why don't you kick us off and start with what time that line starts to form in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting a little shorter now that it's the winter time, but in the height of the summer, people are waiting an absurd, probably maybe two to three hours in line, especially on the weekends. And we're open Wednesday through Sunday for breakfast and lunch. Uh, we open at nine and our kitchen closes at 2 p.m. And then after 2 p.m. till three, we're open for takeout pastry and coffee. So that's kind of the format that's worked the best for us. And when you first walk into the door, You'll see our glass display filled with pastries on the counter and then in the refrigerated case. We probably do anywhere from 25 to 30 different pastries on any given day. And then you order at the counter. It's super casual and it's counter service. We'll get you seated and then we bring everything to you. Love it. Tim, when you switch over to that PM service experience, share that with us. So we do a 13-course modern Filipino tasting menu. We flip the dining room to a completely different restaurant almost at night. So rather than the counter service and all that, it's the lights are dimmed and candles are lit and you see the open kitchen. And we're doing basically all of the food that I grew up eating in a tasting menu format with you know all the things like caviar, wagyu, squab and things like that but that's a it's a fun experience to contrast against the daytime genie it seems growing up i was seeing all you wanted to do is make mom and dad happy and pull them out of whatever they may have been going through at a specific sure. time in their life for you that was giving them a delicious bite of something yeah They've got to be proud of what you built there. Huh? Definitely. I think they, you know, they're super supportive. I was the youngest of four, so they, I think they were kind of tired by the time that I was growing up. And so they did let me pursue what I wanted to pursue. They wanted me to be happy. I don't necessarily think that they wanted me to do the physical, strenuous kitchen stuff, but that's what I ended up choosing. And they've been into the restaurant since and they've been super supportive. So I'm pretty lucky. I mean, I'd say I, I like cooking. I think that we're pretty good at what we do, but for me, it's more about the gratification of seeing somebody's response when you make something for them. And I, I talk to Tim about it all the time and my childhood and my upbringing. It's, I wish there was a more nostalgic reason that I chose cooking, but to be honest, like when I was growing up as a kid, I think, you know, my parents were going through something that I didn't really understand. They were immigrants to the United States. They fled um, during the Korean War. And so being a child going through war, I think it definitely had some long-term psychological effects that I wasn't aware of. And so I felt like I was always trying to pull some sort of happiness or joy out of them. And so I knew that 
I could make them something very specific. Like my dad loves lemon Costella cake and then my mom loves chocolate covered orange peels. If you give that to them, they'll be like giddy for, for that time. And, and they grew up with nothing. So it was like they always held on to things so tightly and cherished items so much. And I always wished that I could give them something that would just disappear. You know what I mean? That there was no remnants of. And so I appreciate the fact that whatever I cook for them, no matter what it is, it's going to be gone. It'll just be a memory for them. And so I think I've definitely translated that into my career and why I do it for other people. And we've had the opportunity to meet some incredible people that we have just become friends with and will probably be lifelong friends with because of that interaction. It's been very, we're very fortunate to be able to do that. How old were you when you realized you had that power? I'm going to call it power to make something and have them. Uh, I feel take like a I was pretty young. My mom would be there. She would let me cook and experiment and she would eat it and it would be terrible. And she would be like, oh, good job. This is really good. And I remember going to summer camp and we would make like, I was probably seven and we would make a trifle with instant vanilla pudding and Cool Whip and strawberries and Sara Lee pound cake. And I was like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever ate. And so I would always make these little things. And even growing up when there's tension or arguments, it's like once everybody sits down at the dinner table, there's that commonality and you kind of put your differences aside. And so that was I think what I cherished was like that peacefulness and where everybody got along and they were happy and they were eating something delicious. How old were you when you were making bread without a recipe? That was very young. I remember I was with my brother. This was in New Orleans, so it was probably earlier than seven. And we were in the kitchen and I was making like a bread biscuit thing. And then it came out rock hard and it was in the oven for way too long. And then I just remember the paper that it was on the tray catching on fire and everybody like running to stomp it out. <laughs> but I was very young. Why were you in the kitchen so young at six or five or whatever, making bread? Did mom cook and you watched her and you wanted to get in there? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah she would just let me mix things together. I mean, it probably started as like instant pancake mix, you know, and then I just wanted to do other things and she would just watch and help me bake it and we would try it together. So and, she was your inspiration and, in the kitchen. Yeah, for sure. Why did your family move around so much? I think so. I was born in New Orleans and then along with my brother, I'm the youngest of four and my sister was born in Boston and then my other brother was born in Chicago and everybody's like, oh, was your dad in the military? And I'm just like, no, <laughs> we just moved around a lot. I think he was um, a doctor. He was an interventional radiologist and he would work at different hospitals and then he would work at the VA and things like that. And I think for him, it was he definitely got bored a lot. And I think he got tired of kind of the red tape of healthcare. And so just, you know, he wanted to be able to help people. And so I think that's what sparked a lot of the changes. Tim, what kind of kid were you? I liked, I was, I think my parents uh, were kind of like tired by the time they had me, I'm the youngest. And so they kind of just let me roam free. And luckily I think I was a pretty good kid for being set free in the, in the wild and roaming around. I grew up right outside of the city in Cicero. And so I never really was super into video games. I was always outside doing anything from biking around or skating or playing sports and always interested in sports as a kid. That's what, that's one thing that I thought that I was really interested in was like trying to become a professional rollerblader or like playing basketball or something like that. But it was never really cooking. I always like watched a lot of uh, cooking shows on PBS. That's kind of one of my earliest memories is like enjoying watching Jacques Pepin and Julia Child and Martin Yan and Rick Bayless and stuff like that. All those shows on PBS and being like really drawn to that, I think maybe because my family is like, it's very food centric. We were always like getting together to eat, share meals. And my mom was always a really great cook growing up. So she was like the cook in the family where everybody was excited to eat her food, whatever dish it was, whether it was like arascaldo, it's like a rice porridge kind of dish or pancit or adobo, whatever it was, but everybody always looked forward to her food. So I really didn't get actually involved in food yet until college professionally. So how did growing up here, we're both in Chicago, influence your cooking style? 
I mean, so growing up, I grew up in Cicerone, so it was a predominantly Mexican-American neighborhood. And so the two foods that I grew up eating were really Filipino food and Mexican food. And so it's interesting for people who aren't too familiar with Filipino food. To me, it always reminds me more of like Mexican cuisine or Puerto Rican cuisine because you have this shared Spanish colonization. So you have a lot of that, those flavors that were brought over from Spain and um, traditions. And But that it's just a very unique food scene. Chicago being here, there's everything you could think of being here and, and we grew up like really enjoying enjoying food i guess my family's always eaten out and stuff so did you ever find yourself in the kitchen when you were younger did you ever try to help mom or did she want your help or were you were out ever really helping my mom only certain things like the labor intensive things like rolling lumpia or making shomai and those were some of my favorite things shomai in particular because it was such a labor intensive thing to make these little dumplings and then the payoff was big if you just sat there and then made a ton of them but not really my mom worked a lot even though she was you know she cooked in the kitchen but it was mostly on the weekend so I ended up learning how to make eggs and sausage in the kitchen and cooking and warming things up in the microwave and experimenting at an early age just because my parents were at work kind of late and we always had to usually make dinner for ourselves what was mom and dad's work my dad was in the hospital as x-ray tech and then my mom he always worked a late shift so he would get out, start around two, three, and get off at midnight. And then my mom worked in the post office. So both recently retired. They spend a lot of time at Kasama now. <laughs> and they approve, I take it. Uh, yeah, very happy. <laughs> oh, both of you got the healthcare uh, background. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. How did you ultimately end up polishing dishes at GT? So I was home from college for a summer. And I was having dinner with my family or late lunch or something in Chinatown. Um, And then a friend of mine texted me and asked me if I wanted to make $50 polishing dishes or something like that. He's like, sure, I'm I'm already in the city. I'll I'll, I'll come over. And so I remember like walking into GT Fish and Oyster. And at the time, that was like probably one of the nicest restaurants that I had been into. And I was like, what am I doing here? And then somebody led me to the basement, into the dish pit. And I remember seeing a lot of people moving around and running all over the place. And all I did was just polish dishes and draft dishes. And they asked me if I wanted to do it again the next weekend. And I was like, yeah, sure. And so from there, I started running food and busing tables. And then that's when I like was like, this is kind of fun. And I was like, can I, I asked Giuseppe if I could cook the following summer. It was like, Sure. And so they started me off on Garmo the next year and I really enjoyed it from the start. Like when I first started in that kitchen, I remember thinking that this is what I wanted to. It was weird. It was just, it was like, this is it. I want to be a chef. And so from that point, it was like, I just wanted to learn everything I could. Is the friend that texted you, do you want to make 50 bucks? Still in the industry? It's in the industry, yeah, yeah. It's kind of the liquor end of things, yeah. And what restaurant did your family go to in Chinatown? When we were there, man, where was I at the time? I think we probably had eaten at either Triple Crown or Seven Treasures at that time. But I think we were already done. And I, I think we were like getting smoothies or boba tea at, at Joey's. And so I was like, cool, I'm done eating. So we can just, they could just drop me off, you know. Is there like a chef today or a book that inspires you both? You could each take it separately or together like that you turn to or flip to? I think that for me, especially since opening Kasama, I've always sang her praises for my career. I worked for Joanne Chang. My first industry job, I think almost 18 years ago now, and she had one bakery at the time called Flower in Boston. Now she has 10, I think, and another restaurant and cookbooks and will still to this day text me, congratulations. She's so great. And, and I think that she gave me an incredible foundation that has still influenced my decisions today, especially running the business at Kasama. And I think her impact is I think what restaurants are striving for today, and she was doing this over 20 years ago. That's just how she was operating. And I think to be able to appreciate where we are and where we've gotten, it definitely takes a lot of reflecting on the past and people that have influenced us. And I just, I was really lucky for that to be my first industry job because I think that prepared me for everything to come. But I think had I not had that experience, I don't necessarily know if I would have had the most positive start in kitchens. 
you know what I mean? And I definitely try and use that when guiding people now. And it's like, I just want to be able to pay it forward. And I know that I can't shield people from some of the bullshit and that they have to go through some of the hard stuff to appreciate the industry and what they want out of it. But I'm just super grateful that she was a mentor for me. Love it. Tim, how about you? Any book you flip through or? I mean, in general, I'm not a very big reader. I kind of hate it. <laughs> but I, when I first started, I was like super, I told you, I was like, this is what I want to do. So I was super gung-ho about learning about restaurants and learning about the industry. And in particular, I was like a big fan of cooking shows already. And so I was a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain. And so I picked up the book Kitchen Confidential. And that was like one of the first books I read front to back, like in forever. And I was in college and I was just skimming through books and not reading them. And that one I read front to back. And the other one that I got was The Devil in the Kitchen, um, Marco Pureway. And I was kind of like really into the stories about how they got there versus, versus the food themselves. Like I never really picked up cookbooks early on. It was more so learning about how people worked in the kitchen and watching videos of old videos of Anthony Bourdain in the kitchen, old videos of Marco Pierre White cooking at, at Harvey's and they have those videos on YouTube. And so I'd, I'd watch all those videos and watched how they moved and watched things they talked about and their kind of their mindset and mentality versus cookbooks. That's cool. That's really interesting. So Jeannie, how did it feel going from Boston to New York City. So I worked for Joanne at her bakery and then I went over to her restaurant that she opened. And I figured if I w was in Boston, I'd probably still be working there. But I was like, if I'm gonna pursue cooking, I should move to New York. And at the time, it was super competitive to get a job. And if you didn't have New York City experience, I, you wouldn't stand a chance. And so I worked at a lot of places. I worked at really small, like mom and pop places. And then I got, I got a job working in a hotel. And so that kind of definitely opened the door for me and having that a couple years of New York City experience. I think I applied at 11 Madison Park like three times. And then I finally got a call back and I was super excited. And I went in for a stage and I was just like mesmerized by the service. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Just everybody coming in and it was just very serious and disciplined. And so the transition was tough because I didn't have New York City experience. I had experience in a bakery in Boston and then at smaller restaurants. But but the pace and, you know, I think when I started 11 Madison Park, they had just gotten three stars. And so it was just a different, it was just a different game, I think, once, once I moved to New York. And Did Joanne push you to get other experience or go to New York or any of that or not? Well, she was super supportive. I think she, you know, I don't think she would have minded if I had stayed in Boston. I just, that experience really did transcend like all of the different genres of cooking that I did in different restaurants. And so I'm super grateful that, that I had my start there. I think Back in the day when it was like super competitive to get a job in New York and just getting called back and I just wasn't used to it, you know, because Joanne, I remember she actually reached out to me because a friend of mine worked there and she's like, you should talk to this woman. This was before I even started cooking. And so, and then Joanne emailed me and she's like, oh, do you want to come in and meet? And so I remember I brought her a CD of photographs of cakes that I made in high school for friends. I wouldn't even want to look at what I made. <laughs> but then after we had, you know, I kind of interviewed her and I was like, what was it like for you? And how do you even get started in doing this? And then she emailed me a couple weeks later asking if I wanted to, if I wanted a job and start kind of as a barista and a counter person. And so I think that just New York was kind of, it was tough for me at first because like I wouldn't get a call back and you really had to keep trying and be super persistent in order to get a job. And so I'm glad that I ended up where I did, but it took a while. Stanton Social, Nobu, 57, EMP, those are some good names. And what about your time in Asia? Was that after New York? That was between New York and Chicago? That was after New York. Okay. So after I left EMP, I, I was ready to, I think move out of New York City, but I still wanted to have some experience. So then I went over to Singapore for a few months and I was able to stage with some really great mentors and get that experience. And when I came back to the States, I, that's when I was ready to move and I decided to move to Chicago. What was the big difference between New York versus Asia? 
like Singapore, the, the kitchens I there? I think Singapore was an easier transition because you know, there wasn't much of a language barrier. Everybody that I interacted with spoke English. And so I think that was an important transition for me. But it was also when it was an easier one. It wasn't as intimidating. So I was like, oh, I can actually do this and communicate. And I was super fortunate because, you know, I had the support there. I, a friend from Levin Medicine Park, his family lived in Singapore and they took me in. They treated me like family. And so it was definitely like pretty easy learning experience over there. But it's crazy that was so long ago because he, my friend Kenneth, he was a extern at EMP and now he's the head chef at Noma. And so it's just funny how the paths lead a decade later. <laughs> so back to Chicago Peninsula, and then the Boca GT thing, and then Oriole from there. Yeah. Only to meet this athletic gentleman to your <laughs> right on my screen. <laughs> Speaking of athletics, Tim, you mentioned it earlier, but so I was, it was interesting. You're saying you apply a similar work ethic in the restaurant industry that you did towards athletics. And that we've, I'm not surprised, but a number of chefs have brought this up in the past. Like this two specific ones that come up are Thomas Keller mentioned. He mentioned like playing Little League baseball and similarities and a team and baseball, bringing that to the kitchen. And then Daniel Hum mentioned it, like the athletic thing. I think he was a professional cyclist, I want to say. So any examples you can give us here on, on how you do that? One, uh, let's see. The first thing I think that comes to mind is that I bring this up to Jeannie a lot and I, I talk to the staff about this is that one thing when we work in the restaurant is we have to remember that we're all working towards the same goal. And that's, I think, a super important thing to remember because people can get and take things very personally in the restaurant. Criticism, telling people to do stuff a different way, thinking that those criticisms are against them when it's really just to make this whole thing work better. And so in the wrestling room, I would actually literally get into Fist, bite, fist fights with some of my best friends. You know, you get somebody to get poked in the eye or somebody would feel like a move was dirty or takedown wasn't fair or something like that and you end up getting into it. And when you leave that room, you have to remember that we were only trying to get better and trying to make each other better. And nothing is personal. I have to leave that room and realize we can still be friends and that can stay there. And so things can get super heated in the restaurant. And at the end of the day, you have to realize that whether or not we were on the same page, we were trying to do the right thing. You know, we were trying to make the guest experience the best. We were trying to make sure that something was executed. We were trying to make sure that something done the right way. And at the end of the day, we have to come to an understanding and know that this is work. And when you're here, it's work. And when you leave it, that's, that's where it stays. And uh, you could start the next day and get after it and coordinate and work together and make things better and move on from there versus holding grudges or holding on to anything. So that's definitely a thing that's helped me in the restaurant and handle situations better. We talked about GT and it seems like you rose in the ranks pretty quickly there through service and front of house positions. I didn't realize you cooked. So you went back that next summer and started in the kitchen. Did you learn a lot there? I guess seeing all aspects of that restaurant or most aspects. I did. I think it was a very unusual experience and road to take as a first job. Normally you start as a, as a busser and then you move on and maybe you change gears and you go on to cook somewhere. But there I had worked as everywhere from the dish pit to the front of the house and then next year going from the back of the house cooking. And so that stint when I worked in the back of the house, I worked about six months and then I had to go back to school to finish up my last semester in college. Finished my degree, came back, and then I started. When I came back, I told them that I wanted to work a front of the house job to make a little bit more money at the time after like moving back and trying to like decide if I wanted to move out of my parents' house and starting to pay student loans and stuff like that. And so I took the head expediter position. And so I went from polishing, busing, running to cooking and then to expediting. And so that was, I got a really good perspective on how a restaurant worked through those couple of years that I worked there. Cause I was not only able to see, you know, the kitchen side of things, but then I was able to see how the front of the house communicated to the kitchen. And sometimes when you work back of the house, that's all you ever work. And you don't really understand what's happening in the front of the house. And so I was very fortunate to start there. I was very fortunate to work with Giuseppe and the, and the team there. And they were always like 
super open about me like moving into other positions and allowing me to grow and like and allowing me to leave that place to go learn somewhere else i remember giuseppe used to tell me i would work expediting shifts and then on my weekends i would go stage at different restaurants and cook in the kitchen and so i would ask him for like i'd be like hey can you set me up with matthias at you show can you reach out to um where else did i stage at um sepia and, and a bunch of other places and so i would just stage and he would just tell me just make sure you put in your two weeks all the time and just like ready for me to take off and go learn somewhere else so it was really uh, a great first experience did you have that athletic mentality in I feel like you probably brought that to all the positions you were in to do all those positions and probably get it. You know what I mean? Are you competitive? I'm pretty competitive. I'm genius. competitive. Nah, enough I see that. To I like saw s- that genius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty competitive. And I, I also am very hard on myself. Like uh, the sports that I excelled in were team sports, but also individual sports with track and field and, and wrestling. And so wrestling, you have that mentality where it's like, there's always somebody working harder than you. And so you can never really do enough when it comes to wrestling. And it's not about the time that's spent in the practice room. It's about the time that's spent outside of that room and putting in extra time. And so I always was like, if I really want to do this for a living, I have to put in the time. I have to go to other restaurants. I have to learn from other people. I have to watch YouTube videos of people cooking. I have to look through cookbooks and and do extra stuff to get ahead of the game. And so I I kind of, I think that definitely helped for sure. Because I I was like spending my weekends cooking at different restaurants while I was expediting. And then that led me into, I ended up reaching out to a friend who set me up at, at, what's the name of the restaurant, Jeannie? Senza. (laughs) <laughs> but no one. And then I ended up working there. And then that I, I, I like that's where I fell in love with fine dining. I went there on my first stage. You sat me down for dinner. I had never had anything like that in my life. And so they didn't have a position open. And so I just kept coming back stage after stage. I'd be like, can I just come in and work with you guys on the next weekend, the weekend after until like a position opened up? Interesting. Are you still hard on yourself in the kitchen? <laughs> yeah. I try to take the weight off of the food as much. I mean, I really care about execution and cooking, but I try not to focus on the food as much as I do about the experience for the guest and what we do as a whole. It's like we focus on giving the guests the best experience that they can get and all the rest comes with that. So I don't, my focus is not on like my chives or the pasta or the way that obviously we have to execute that stuff, but I'm more so thinking about like why we're doing this and guests experience. And then the rest comes with that. Where did you learn that or get that mentality? I think just over the years, I realized that I don't necessarily love cooking. I love cooking for people. And if I wasn't cooking for people, then I wouldn't really enjoy doing this because I don't just on my days off, just go in and, and spend all day cooking in the kitchen just to make like perfect dishes or create something. It's like, I'll have family over and then I'll make something. I'll have guests over and then I'll make something. That's the only time I'm cooking, but I'm never really cooking for myself. So you went from working with Noah at Senza to opening Oriel with him. Why did you do that? Like, why did you? Uh, Senza had closed in January, 2015, 16, 15. Yeah. Because then Oriel opened in 2016. But Senza closed, I had worked there for almost a full year. Because GT, Fish and Oyster, like the last service that I worked there was New Year's Eve, January 14. And then started at Senza. Worked there for a year till they closed. And I had learned a ton working for Noah. And I was like pretty committed to going wherever he was going to go. And so he was like kind of floating around and through jobs. And I kind of found some random gigs in between. And then the idea of opening came about and then we we're talking and Gina and I were dating at the time and we were basically all in on whatever this project was. And so got it. You guys met at, did you meet at GT? We met at GT, but we didn't start dating till about a year later. We like re-met through a mutual friend and then. Okay. So contrary to working in different cities and countries, like the woman on your, my left, you were right <laughs> on the screen. Why did you choose to stay put in Chicago? I don't know if it was necessarily like a decision that I was just going to stay here forever. It just happened so fast. Like I was working at GT and then I moved on to Senza and then Senza turned into Oriel and then became the chef de cuisine. Then we were like, we should open our own place. And then it was like, I mean, it wasn't really that fast. It was over a decade from start till that happened, but it feels really fast. And there was never really the opportunity to go off in another place because it's hard. Cooking's hard. 
you get paid minimum wage, maybe a little bit above, and you had to pay rent and had to pay student loans and things like that. And so I lived with my parents for, for a majority of that time after college. And that helped me a lot. It wasn't like ideal for start dating Jeannie and be like, I live with my parents. But I was, I was two yeah. at the time. <laughs> was living with her parents. And we were like, yes. <laughs> oh, so that, was, that, that worked out. We found out we were both left-handed. And well, you guys are both left-handed? Both left-handed. Years later, here we are. Three lefties on this. Wow. Oh, really? um, <laughs> oh yeah. There you go. So um, when did you? But yeah. when did you both know it was time to do your own thing? I think that I my goal, selfishly for me, I always wanted to open some sort of bakery concept because when you're a pastry chef at a, at a restaurant, sometimes it's kind of confining to just doing the bites at the end of the meal. And I wanted to be able to have people come in at all hours of the day to be able to have pastry. And so I knew that I wanted to do a casual daytime concept. I knew that we needed the revenue from something else to be able to most likely make it work. And so that's kind of where the idea of combining these two concepts happened because I don't necessarily think that Tim wanted or was planning to open something casual and counter service driven. And so that's when we were like, oh, we should do as many revenue streams as we can in this space. And we're never thinking of doing fine dining, but we were going to do casual daytime and then more of a refined a la carte dinner time menu. And then... Do you guys just start talking about it at Oriole at a certain time? Were you like itching to do your own thing. I've received like different yeah. answers on this. One of the more interesting ones was from Mark Forgione when he was talking about like when he knew he was, he's, I was writing down recipes. He's working for like Laurent Torrendel or something. And he's like, I was writing down recipes, but not giving it to him. Like I was keeping them for myself, <laughs> like for yeah. my next project. He's like, that's when I knew it was time for me to do my thing. I was like, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Tim doesn't have any recipes. So. <laughs> we don't, I don't have any recipes. I don't come up with anything. I really don't. I actually don't have any recipes. <laughs> so a book is not coming soon or we could punt on We're, we're trying to. We're trying to. Yeah, I got to make up a lot of recipes for that book. There's going to be a lot of... <laughs> I think, yeah, definitely while we were there, we were thinking like, when is when are we going to do it? When's going to be the time? And I think our time had come at Oriole and we realized if we wanted to pursue this we had to do this on our own. We had to leave here to work on getting this off of the ground. And and again, like, I don't think it was the food that came first. It wasn't like, this is going to be it. This is the food that I want to do. This is the recipe. I think if I do these dishes and this concept, I think it's going to be a hit. I hadn't, I didn't even know I was going to do Filipino food. The thing that motivated us was, I think, understanding that if we wanted to see a restaurant run the way we wanted it to be run, the only way to do that is to do it ourselves. And we could have a lot of criticism for anybody doing those things and how they operate. But until you can actually do it yourself, you can't really say too much. You have to kind of go with how things work at that place. And that's how things work best for whatever restaurant you're at. And we wanted to create a place where we ultimately wanted to work. And so that was the first thing that drove us to, to the concept of Kasama. You were working at Senzo's one Michelin star. You go to Oriole, earns two Michelin stars. When you opened Kasama, were you going for that? Did you expect it or? We didn't want to do tasting menu. We, were, we didn't open with that idea at all. We were like, we're going to do a la carte. We want to be accessible. We don't want to. We want to go a different direction completely. I think that's one thing that like, I think we said in like early interviews that we were like moving away from the tasting menu format, but I think, I don't think people realize like we were never planning to do a tasting menu. And then we were like, pandemic sucks. We should do less people because we don't know what's going to happen during the winter and what capacity restrictions there are and how are we going to make things work if that happens, if you're only able to sit 50% of the dining room or whatever. And so it just made sense to do a tasting menu. And so we said, okay, well, let's try doing a tasting menu. So it wasn't, it was like not in our plan whatsoever. I was going to ask what's changed from the original vision. That's probably that one of the, the big ones. Because yeah, daytime yeah. was really similar. And I think the daytime was real. We were really fortunate that was our concept because it worked really well for takeout. 
And so that saved us during the pandemic because otherwise, if we opened as a tasting menu restaurant and then had to transition to do takeout, it, it just doesn't work. And that was always our, our plan was the bakery. And we thought that the bakery was going to be the thing that struggled and dinner would carry it. Financially. Financially, yeah, exactly. Tim, what's one thing you depend on Genie for? That's a lot of things. It's <laughs> 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 a lot of things. Oh man, that's that's a hard question to answer. Not because I can't think of anything, because there's too many things. I think, I mean, there's no way that I'd be in the position that I'm in without Jeannie. We wouldn't be here. I think there's a very unique situation where we're not only business partners, but we're life partners, and that makes all the difference. Is that regardless of the team and who comes and who goes, it's like that. Jeannie's the one who's going to be there no matter what. Like we're there together. And I think in terms of the restaurant, Jeannie is a lot more focused on the business end of things and how things operate in that aspect. And that's definitely a strong point of hers, which has ultimately led to a huge part of our success as a business. Without that, it's like you can't run. You can't cook the food that you want to cook, you know? And so that's, I guess... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Genie. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. I wouldn't be. I'd probably be a chef. If honestly, if I left Oriel, I'd probably just end up taking a chef position at a place that somebody else owned, and then my career would go from there. I think that's the the the, the road that I would go. But with Genie being there, it's like now we're, we've taken it to the next level, where we're not just we're not just the chef and partner. We own the restaurant, we own the building, and we make the decision and we change the things that need to be changed. Jeannie, one thing you depend on Tim for? There's many. Definitely staying focused and focusing on details. We always joke that Tim's an idealist and I'm a catastrophist. And so that's why we work together well. But Tim will conceptualize things and then he's very detailed and he'll write like a list after list and lists on lists. And then I'm definitely more of a bigger picture thing. And yeah, he's like super detail oriented and he comes up with a lot of the dishes and he's helped me with a lot of the pastry stuff and i think some of the most successful pastries that we have at kasama are items that he was like what about this and so then like i'll make the physical thing and then he'll make another aspect of it and we'll combine it together and so he definitely helps with the pastry inspiration too and I think it works well together because we're focused on different things. He's focused on like specific aspects of service and I'll do more admin stuff. And then it just somehow, and we have an incredible team and we have 50 people working it. We started with 10 and we have 50 now, which is crazy. And they're all incredible. And it's like everybody cares about Kasama. Everybody cares about the people that come into Kasama and they're brainstorming when they're not at work about how to make these systems better. And it's just, I don't necessarily think that something that comes with experience, it's some of our staff that we've hired have no experience in restaurants. They're just really good people. And so, yeah, it's everybody plays a very specific role and it's pretty awesome. Is there something today that you wish you would have known when you opened? (laughs) There is one thing, actually. I think you do get what you pay for. And I think we were pretty stingy with some things like with our build out, but simply just because we didn't have the money for it. You know what I mean? And I think some of those funds could have been shifted and prioritized more in different ways. But it's in retrospect too, you know, you can't really say much because like, it got us here and it is what it is. We did the best we could. I get the sense from talking to you all reactions that some of these accolades and I just named a few and granted the few I named were huge. There's probably not probably there are so many more. Do they take you by surprise? Yes, definitely. Yes. Sorry, I don't mean it like it, it sounds like we hesitated. Like, yeah, you're like, yeah, absolutely. 100%. When in anything, a surprise. When we, I think when we set out opening, those are things you strive for. It's not the goal, right? The goal is to open a successful business. But you know that if you get included as 
bib gourmand when you open that reaches a certain demographic of people and hopefully that brings more people in. If you get a Michelin star when you open that reaches a certain demographic of people. When you get food and wine that reaches a huge demographic of people and it brings people in. And so those are things that you were like, everybody wants as a business owner. So that you're like, you don't say, I expect myself to be in that position, but you're like, this is the dream. And so every time you get them, you're like, this is crazy. This is, you can't imagine anything like this, that you get a James Beard and food and wine in, in the same year. And that's, that's crazy. And it's, it's always a surprise, but they're, they're always something that when we open, it's like, these are the things that could help, help us. These are the places we need to put ourselves and imagine yourself. You always want to see yourself at the top of the podium. You're never like, I hope I get eighth. I think it's super wonderful that we get all this attention, but it's still crazy to us that people wait in line and have heard about Kasama. There's like a disconnect for me and for us. And it's like the fact that people will make a dinner reservation and then come from out of town to come eat at Kasama is like pretty mind blowing. And the fact that people wait, will wait two hours just to get in the door to wait more to order food is absurd. You know, I've driven by at like 745 and like people are in line. I was like, shit, people are in line already. They don't open till eight. And then I Google it. I was like, wait, no, they open at nine and they're already like in line. But I'm sure there's people <laughs> who are like way earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Around seven. I mean, there's literally, we have people literally flying from the Philippines to come to Kasama, like booking their tickets, then booking their, their flights, come to Kasama to eat, eat Filipino food. <laughs> it's incredible that. The work that the team puts in is recognized. It's awesome to see them stoked about it too because they work super hard and they genuinely care about every single person that comes into that place and they want them to have a good time in the best capacity that we can. It definitely gets more daunting the longer that people wait, but we're always trying our best. Do you feel pressure on the need to continue to stand out? What's the strategy to move forward? I think and as much as we want to create new things and stay relevant, we always have this conversation about it's just as hard, if not harder, to stay the same. And so we want to focus on consistency and making sure that we have lines, hopefully five, ten years from now and being, you know, we want to be that institution, but that's also a really large feat and we can work towards it, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And everybody's willing to try the hot new restaurant or the one that's on the best new list. And But then how do you keep those people coming back over and over and over again? And it's like, those are the people that are going to keep the place running and support. And so I think our focus is, I think inevitably we'll need to grow to provide more opportunities for people that are on the team. But we want to focus on keeping Kasama what it is and creating new revenue streams and just staying busy so we can keep supporting the people that are working there. We started with 10 people and I think the opening week of Kasama, we had maybe 40 grand in the bank, which is like less than one week of payroll now. And it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy how busy you have to be. And it's, we're super grateful and we understand that People are willing to wait and pay and support every single person on our team. And it's, that's the most important thing to us. When did the line start forming, right? Pretty I early. Could, it wasn't that it was long. Yeah. Pandemic, but it's because we weren't doing dining, you know? And oh, is that when? It's like people would, on the weekends during the pandemic, people would wait outside, but that was, it was like social distancing. People can, we were at like, in one at a time and in terms of waiting to dine in i think once we started doing dine in on the weekends people were hearing about it i imagine like you make 20 black truffle croissants or something you know and then like they're gone by 9 <laughs> 20 and then you're yeah. like shit i gotta make more of these and then right, the next, right. or are they gonna line up again and then the next week you're like i'll make 30 and then before sure. you know it, you're like maxed out you're like all right we can't make more than a hundred a day or whatever the number is. Like that's probably a game in and of itself, huh? I think we made like 40 breakfast sandwiches when we first came out with them. And then no, I think- No, we do like 400 a day. Unbelievable. Hey listeners, didn't know that was coming up, but want to take a quick second to give some love to our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's is an all-American family-owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. 
Last year, Martin's donated nearly 40,000 pounds of bread and rolls to charitable causes. More on that in a sec. They have the number one potato roll in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. And aren't they the potato roll of that breakfast sandwich? Yes, indeed. That is the roll that Kasama uses with their famous breakfast sandwich. So making an all breakfast sandwiches taste better too. Of course. I mean, I looked at those uh, rolls this morning and thought about making one. I did not because I ran out of time and didn't and had to make just Martin's toast for breakfast. But still, breakfast sandwich would be excellent with that. And I can just go down the street here in Chicago and grab that from Kasama, thankfully. Although that line is quite long. Anyhow, big fans of Martin's over here, as, as you all know. But Martin's mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need both close to their baking facilities and abroad. So to learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com, follow them on social media at potatorolls for recipe inspiration. Martin's. We thank you. But yeah, I mean, I think probably one of the most absurd things about Kasama is the fact that we probably produce about a thousand pastries on any given day, and we're doing it out of a 30-quart mixer because we can't fit a bigger mixer in the restaurant. Oh my gosh. And so somehow it gets done. Like, we have an incredible team, but I think that's probably one of the most absurd facts about Kasama is the fact that we're a 30 quart mixer. I never imagined in my life I would be doing that in a bakery. But on our weekends we do on a Saturday we'll do it's hard to check uh, like count the number of covers because of takeout, but we do anywhere from four four to five hundred checks, four to five hundred transactions on a Saturday. It's insane. We're not talking about a big place here, people. Yeah, thirty I mean we have thirty seats. We have thirty seats and we do four hundred four hundred checks. That's so exciting. It's so cool. You guys, I, the team sounds so great. Just, just like from how they work with you, how you treat them, what you said to him after the same goal type thing. It's just, I'm, I'm saying this because like, it's interesting, like giving to your team, like giving back to your team. And I just want to switch gears briefly to giving back, if you will, like a social impact component in giving back. Funny enough, there's been chefs who kind of take that route too but i kind of just wanted to like let you shine a light on an organization or a cause the podcast i was mentioning earlier celebrates social impact with every guest and learning you know how they do it keeps me keeps the whole team inspired whether it's a certain cause or event or organization meaningful to you or to the restaurant or whatnot so can you guys share any causes or charities that you work with yeah for sure so we do try and do as many charitable events as we can and luckily we are at a point with kasama where we have an incredible team and we're fully staffed and so we're able to step away and do these events and so the last one we did was with pilot light an incredible organization that is teaching kids about food education and i think it's just super important for that to be taught at an early age and to make it fun. And I think that especially this year we're going to be doing, or next year we're going to be doing No Kid Hungry. And I think teaching that education to children and providing that resource is especially important. And we want to be able to ensure that that those resources are out there for everybody. And for a topic that is so universal is super, super important to us. That's cool. And since it's one of our one of our last episodes of the season, I'm I used to say this nearly every episode and I try to not sound like a broken record to people listening, but there's always a new listener. And I always say to give what you can when it comes to this stuff. It could be your voice, it could be your dollars, it could be your time. They're all great things. So you may have a hundred followers on social media and one person may see something you're you know talking about and you may make a difference for them and it doesn't have to be thousands of dollars you're donating it could be five dollars it could be volunteering for one hour a month these are all different ways you can get involved in you know your community chefs and restaurants tend to be extremely generous when it comes to these things and as you guys know you could probably do a different event every night of the week so 
you know, I'm always interested to hear where chefs align themselves with the different causes and events they support in their communities. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out. Okay. Number one is for both of you. We'll go Jeannie first. What did you have for dinner last night? We were at Daisy's Po' Boy and Tavern and we were doing an event um, with Eric Williams and we pretty much had one of everything off the menu. Same thing, Tim? Yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, a lot of oysters, a lot of po' boys. Jeannie, name a smell in the kitchen you love. Cinnamon buns. Mm. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate? When you guys are roasting like the chilies or the, the pepper like or something. Toasting chili, chili flakes toasting or something chili. like that. Yeah, yeah. Tim, what pisses you off in the kitchen? What makes me mad? Is there a list for this kitchen? too or no? What does piss me off in the kitchen? What I'm trying to think. Doing things unrelated to cooking <laughs> in the <laughs> professional kitchen. And there's a lot of a lot of flair stuff that the cooks will do. A little tapping, a little extra movements. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Not cooking. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody else is cooking and I'm the one like hanging out, that's like pretty pretty cool. <laughs> Tim, name one ingredient we will never see in genies cooking or baking star anise genie one ingredient we won't see in tim's cooking white truffles white truffles <laughs> you, call me cheap? you call me cheap <laughs> <laughs> that's funny all right i love it okay now we're a little warmed up i was mentioning we were proud to have frito-lay as a partner of the season of the podcast and given kasama was Nicely featured in season two of The Bear. We thought it'd be fun to kind of stay on theme here. And since we just did a little speed round, given the potato chip omelet scene from The Bear, if you two are going to do something like fun with a chip, like a Dorito or a Tostito or something, what would you do? What's your potato chip omelet? Our potato chip omelet, our go-to, this is one of our top three favorite meals is Chili Mac. It's a weird one. That, and we're not talking about I'm making my own chili and have my own spice blend and I add coffee to it or bourbon. I'm going straight packet of chili, mild, standard chili over mac, some sour cream, cheddar, and then some crushed Fritos over top and we're happy. I overeat every time I eat that. <laughs> You're like, just one more bowl. Will we ever see that as a Thursday special? <laughs> it may be just to make me happy. People will be like, that's kind of weird that they did Chili Mac. <laughs> I'd be so game for that. You know, that's kind of one of the pleasures of owning your own restaurant is like, I'm just going to do chicken pot pie this Thursday. <laughs> has nothing to do with any of our menu. But we'll do a fried shrimp sandwich and chicken wings. And <laughs> No, I love that. That's good. I think the chips as the garnish is always, I think it's always a good thing that they, they have this cool like TikTok channel called Flavor, FLVR, where they have, I don't know, there's like thousands of recipes people submit of how they incorporate their chips like into a recipe. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I love adding stuff that I know that I can't make. Yeah. <laughs> it makes everything better. Oh, that's like an interesting point. A challenge yeah. one chef to try to make a Frito. Totally. Not going to happen. <laughs> so it's delicious and you should just buy it and put it on your food. <laughs> That's a great point. That's a really good point. Like chips are the, one of the things I, I work with Rachel Ray during the day and she likes chips. Like she'll use them. She'll serve them alongside a sandwich, which is like funny because she's always teaching people how to cook, but she's like, I'm not going to make a Dorito better than Doritos. Yeah, leave ketchup alone. Don't make it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Have you talked to Chris Shepard about that, by the way, or no? Does he make his own ketchup? No, he won't. Oh, thank God. I, ran into <laughs> I was him. like, I thought we were friends, Chris. I ran into it with Charleston <laughs> once and I'm not going to say where we were, but they were serving a homemade ketchup with the burger and fries. And he's like, why fuck with Heinz, man? It's the king. It's the king. Don't mess with it. All right, cool. So closing it out, there's not always a direct path in the restaurant world. I feel like everybody has their story. They're all a pretty crazy journey. Each one's unique. What would you both say to a young chef or restaurateur that's trying to be the next Kasama? Man, brace yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. It's like playing, playing the lotto, maybe. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> we understand that this situation is extremely unique and extremely hard, and there was some very lucky circumstances that, that got us to this place. But for me, I think understanding that 
that success as a chef doesn't necessarily mean this. This industry is so vast and wide that you can do so many cool things. That doesn't mean being a chef name on a restaurant. I think we're always like, you got to be a chef. You got to run a restaurant. It's like, there's people who are traveling the world doing what they're doing. There's people who are working in test kitchens and working as like airline chefs or hotel chefs or people who test products and all that stuff. And I think this industry, it narrows it down when you work in restaurants to something so small, but I think using these skills in the restaurant can take you a lot of places outside of the restaurant. I know this probably sounds corny, but I really do believe the difference of Kasama are the people that are in Kasama. And it's like, I think that every decision that we've made inadvertently or not has always come down to how can we keep on the team that we have? That was what spurred the whole dinner opening of our tasting menu it was how do we generate enough money where if something were to happen, we can still keep our team. And I know that's not a luxury that every place has, but I think if you can start there and understand that you have to make money, that the numbers don't lie, it's all about what you bring in versus what you put out and focus that in a way that can take care of the people that you have, I really do think that everything kind of falls into place after that. I do think that the food people think the food is delicious and it's a unique experience, but there's one million restaurants serving one million different types of food. And I really do think that the people that resonate with the experience are the ones that appreciate the experience and the people that they encounter when they come in, whether it's the people that they talk to in line or our team in particular. And I just think that's what makes it unique. I don't even think that we could replicate Kasama if we tried again, because the culture that has been created has just naturally evolved into what it is because of the people that are there. Like our team takes out Tim's mom bowling, like without us. <laughs> and like, you know, they hang out with his family and that's not something that you can expect from people all the time or teacher. And like, it's pretty incredible. Like it's truly mind blowing some days. And uh, I think that's probably the biggest challenge, right? Is like creating, you know, that place where other people want to be and it's like how can we expect that of others if we don't want to be there dang nice genie you beat me that was a, that was a much better answer than mine <laughs> what's next and what's next could mean the form of a restaurant the form of a project the form of a new pastry in the case next week a new dish on the menu take it however you want no restaurant, no concepts, no restaurants, none of that stuff. I think, like Jenny was saying earlier, it's always, I think it's going to be inevitable for us to grow eventually, for us to grow our team. But I think our main focus now that everything has come to us, it's like we need to be able to stay the same. We need to get better. And so it's like now we need to think about our pastries. If we're not making them better, how can we make them more efficient? How can we make it easier on the people on the team that, that, that work for us? How do we do more? I think I'm going to do some changes to the tasting menu. I think we're ready to add some, a couple new dishes to the daytime menu. But yeah, it's, that's a thing that we talk about a lot. It's like, what's next, especially with our, our team and our managers. And how do we keep that line after 10 years? Like we go to Lula on a, on a Monday morning, there's a 30 minute wait and they've been open for since 99. And so, yeah, that's kind of our focus now is, is just making Kasama better because ultimately that's why we've had successes. We've never stayed stagnant. We've been just takeout. We've added takeout dinner. We've changed the tasting menu. We've added new pastries. We've added new things. We've done more events and we've put ourselves in. And we like to do a lot of events across the country just to get more people to eat our food. And we're doing something in LA with La Cita next month. Hopefully we'll be heading down to New Orleans uh, to cook with uh, some friends down there and New York and all, all that stuff. And we're trying, to, we're trying to get ourselves to other cities so more people can try our food. I love it. Thank you both so much. I appreciate you taking the time during what is always a line down the street type of day. I think it was early on. I took an industry colleague, a friend of mine there, someone who works with Jose Andres. I think you, you probably remember. And he said, where should we go? I only have this one like snack 
And I was like, let's go to Kasama. And I hadn't been yet. I just knew like what you were doing there was like the real deal. So we go in and we sit down and he's like, what's good? I was like, I don't know. Probably everything. He's like, you haven't been here? I was like, no. He's like, well, that's pretty ballsy to bring me to a place that you haven't been to. I was like, you're good, dude. We got a lot of stuff. He took a lot of stuff back with him on the plane to DC. And then like you guys got one of your early accolades. He's like, oh, pretty cool. Kasama won this. And then a couple of months later, he's like, oh shit, they won this. And now every time you win something, he's like, damn, man, you really so took funny. me to the right spot. <laughs> that was pretty funny. So keep kicking ass. I love what you guys are doing there. I, Katie and I will both be in soon for dinner. Got a cruise in for breakfast sandwich and all the things again soon. But thank you both. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having Thanks us. So Happy holidays. Thanks again to chefs Jeannie Kwan and Tim Flores. Find Jeannie on Instagram at Jeannie Kwan. Find Tim on Instagram at Timothy Ryan Shy. To learn more about Pilot Light, go to pilotlightchefs.org. And to learn more about No Kid Hungry, go to nokidhungry.org. We'll share links in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, would you be so kind as to rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice? And don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. And also our brand new podcast called Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a family-friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. You can find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at Clean Play Club Pod. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.